This is Kyle Hartung from Jobs for the Future, or JFF, and this is the Building Equitable Pathways podcast. In this series, leaders from across the country working at the intersection of K-12 education, post-secondary education and training, and workforce development will share their insights and perspectives grounded in practice to shed light on the why and the how of identifying and dismantling inequitable structural and systemic barriers to improve educational and career outcomes for youth. last episode, we discussed the role of data in shaping the narratives we tell ourselves about students and our systems, and how they have the power to obscure or reveal the realities that shape inequity in access and outcomes. In today's episode, we will continue this conversation and explore the power of data to not just shape the narratives we tell ourselves, but how to harness their power to shape young people's experience in meaning-making as they navigate an education-to-career pathway. To do so, I'm joined by two amazing practitioners from our community of practice who work on pathways systems building, respectively, at the local and state level. My name is Angela Freeman. I'm the Impact Analyst for the Rush Education and Career Hub, or REACH for short, at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois. My name is Janae Myers-Twitchell. I'm the Chief Impact Officer at Washington STEM. Thank you both for taking some time out to join this conversation today. Angela, What do you find compelling about your work at REACH in Chicago? And, you know, if you want to think about it this way, like, what are the things that keep you up at night and excite you when you wake up every morning about your work? I think what is most compelling is the place-based focus of our work. So Rush and by extension REACH, they have made an explicit commitment to health equity as an institutional priority. We want to make sure that our neighbors and the communities that we serve that the people are not just surviving, right? But that they're thriving, that they're able to live healthy lives. So at REACH, you know, we understand and are committed to bringing forth an equitable and healthy future for Chicago area youth and young adults. And we do that through providing innovative, hands-on, industry-aligned STEM and healthcare learning for underrepresented students from cradle to career. Now, What excites me and also keeps me up in terms of the work is For those of us who have been working in the healthcare workforce development space, being responsive to increasing health sector labor market demands, it's it's always been a priority. We recognize that the future would bring a significant need for more people working in healthcare. And then COVID happened. That brought to the forefront systemic and structural nature of these long-standing health inequities that disproportionately burden um, communities of color. And with that really accelerated the need for a lot of the work that we do, whether that's developing learners personally and professionally to address society's most pressing health challenges or having these articulated career pathways aligned to labor market demand or advancing health equity through a diverse, culturally and structurally competent workforce. We know that youth and young adults, they have a really critical role to play in addressing health disparities and building more equitable communities. And we know at REACH that we have the tools to do this work, right? So now it's just a matter of rising to meet that challenge and rethinking and looking at our data processes through an equity lens is really a part of that work. Janae, what about you? You're working at a a different level of the system, uh, supporting and coordinating entities across the state of Washington. What draws you to this work? Even though I'm at the state level, our work at Washington STEM and with Career Connect Washington is extremely place-based as well in terms of our approach and our values. And I frankly would not be doing this work if it didn't have that approach. Prior to this 
job. I spent about a decade co-founding and leading a nonprofit that supports college students in mentoring high school and middle school students. When I was doing that, I saw like very specific systemic issues that were that we were filling in the gaps. But I didn't want to just fill in the gaps. I I didn't want the gaps to be there in the first place. And you know, you frankly have to have direct service like mentoring and you have to have systems change at different levels occurring. It's a false dichotomy or a false choice between the two. But after nearly two decades in direct service, I knew that I was called to do the systems change work. And at Washington STEM and with Career Connect Washington, there are 10 regional networks. They are place-based organizations. um, And Career Connect Washington uses the same model. Um, And the networks are one in the same, actually, between Career Connect Washington and the STEM networks um, in most cases. And those networks are able to stay rooted in the issues as they are experienced by students and families and teachers and businesses. So I got to find a job where that kind of place-based grounding was happening, where we can learn what the barriers are, try out or talk through certain solutions in context of each community, and then take them to statewide policy or implementation and make the systems change so that we can ensure that the system works for all of our students. So I hear like your calling for, for both of you, your calling and vocation really ringing out here. So really excited to dig into this conversation today. And so one of the things I'm curious about as I hear you talk about what's drawn you to this work to begin with is the role of metrics and the stories they tell about what we value. So Angela, to go back to you, what data and metrics do you look to and what story are they telling? Yeah, that's a great question. I know a key piece of the work um, sort of centers around the use of labor market data. So the use of labor market data has really allowed REACH to both identify and strategically target career pathways within the healthcare sector that are in demand currently, will continue to have demand into the future, and have that ability to put students on a path to earning a family-sustaining wage, right? This data is especially important around career planning for stackable credentials. Because, you know, when we think of healthcare, of course, we think about medicine and nursing. You know, we know a lot of the traditional pathways, but those credentials that can be accumulated over time and move an individual along a career pathway or up a career, career ladder are incredibly important as well. So in healthcare, that's patient care technician, medical assistant, phlebotomy, EKG, billing and coding, so on, so, so on and so forth. So having access to these types of certifications really enables our students to immediately gain experience in the field and help them advance along that career ladder. So it's vital that we use data to monitor trends around these roles. In addition to that LMI data, REACH has also identified health equity metrics that reflect determinants of health and are of interest to us in the relation to the work that we do. Measures related to educational achievement, economic mobility, healthcare career choice, and community-level health outcomes function as almost a composite set of metrics and is really where we are focusing our attention currently and building capacity for the future. Thank you for going into that that, uh, bit more detail on that one. Uh, Janae, what about in, in your work in Washington? What are the metrics that you're focusing on and how do you engage with your partners in looking at the stories that that data is telling? Yeah, um, so I'm going to actually answer that question in reverse order, the how we engage, because that actually leads to what we focus on. 
So outcomes metrics kind of tells you if the system is broken, meaning like if you see, you know, how many, which, which students and how many students have um, a credential or post-secondary credential of some sort, that can tell you that the system's not working for everybody, but it doesn't tell you how. So we never put together and look at outcomes data without also looking at systems input data because it, help, it helps make clear that the result of systems inequities is inequitable outcomes and it, and it ties those two together. And it, and it ensures that partners or leaders in the system don't place the blame on students or families for the inequities that the students are experiencing. And we second, we learn from our partners that the reports on the metrics that they were getting in the past were often provided at like the state level. They weren't regionalized or relevant to their geography. So we always work with data in a way that can be sliced into every different kind of geographic level, like zip code, school district, county, legislative district. And we ensure that it includes demographics that are relevant to each region. So of course, race, we're working on disaggregating better tribal populations as well as other races, but also like migrant status, low-income status, English learner status, rural status. Um, And I'll just give you some examples of the metrics that are most common that we use. So of course, post-secondary outcomes of our high school students as a cohort, not just the graduates. And that's important. There's a lot of folks that can pull data on the high school graduates, but they're not pulling the data on the entire cohort, including the students that didn't make it to high school graduation. And the metric we're currently using outside of overall um, percent earning a post-secondary credential is parity to the K-12 high school cohort along demographics, which means that if an overall K-12 high school cohort from a most recent year, let's say they're 50% white and 20% Latinx and 20% Black and so on, you would want to see the enrollments and the completions have roughly the same breakdown. When you reach that point, then demographics aren't predictors anymore of the outcomes um, and the system is working for everybody. I would love to dive a little bit more deeply. So you've, you've talked a lot about the type of data you're using, the type of metrics you're establishing, what you're looking at. Could you thread the needle a little bit, Angela, on how you use that data specifically to bring current inequities or increase equitable access as you think specifically about students' access to career-connected learning in the workplace. And then, Janae, I I would like you to speak to that too. But Angela, could you go there for a moment on that? In a lot of ways, it seems that we at REACH, you know, we have access to an ever-increasing volume of data and the technology needed to analyze it, right? Again, we leverage the LMI data, but we also collect participant data to comply with institutional reporting requirements monitor performance and address issues as they come up. But one thing that we notice, these are really your sort of one-time statistical snapshots, right? They tend to aggregate the experiences of all of our student learners. As Janae mentioned, you know, they can mask disparities. So we realized that we really needed to sort of rethink some of our approaches in data collection and analytics to better understand the equity impacts of our work. So for example, like Janae mentioned, disaggregating our data by race, setting up the infrastructure for us to begin to look at some more longitudinal analysis of our students. So once they come in, once they finish, where are they going more longer term? And finally, prioritizing intentional collaboration with our community and educational partners around data sharing. So we know in order to continue to serve our students in these work-based experiences, we needed to go deeper. We need to further mine the data that we have to ensure 
equal visibility of all of our students. Janae, are you finding something similar in your work with partners or or what are you finding, as, especially looking across so many regions in a state, which of course span political contexts, industrial bases, what does the conversation around equity look like as you're talking with employers and regional education partners about creating equitable pathways to careers with career ladders and that provide meaning and dignity in working life? Where we started in Washington State, um, or at least where I started this journey, about six years ago, there was a big report that said um, that there were going to be 740,000 job openings and annually. And that actually kind of stayed true even as we're coming out of the pandemic, it's still a lot of job openings. And it listed out the numbers that would be family sustaining living wage, et cetera. And that got a lot of big businesses' attention. Um, and it was great for the alarm bells for legislators to pay attention to this and get behind Career Connect Washington and, and start to put some, some funding and supports into this. And when we went and talked to our regional leaders, folks that were close to the ground, it kind of didn't matter what context they were in, political or otherwise. They said, what does that number mean for us? How many jobs in our region? Which jobs? Which folks are getting them? And so we had to start by taking the data really regional, really making sure that folks knew what was in their own backyard. And that meant that helping folks get over their biases of what jobs existed in their community and what you needed to get those jobs. There were many teachers, counselors, folks that still thought that you know, most kids don't need to have any post-secondary credential. There's a lot of good jobs in this community. And it and that just wasn't the case anymore. The jobs data tends to be the thing that everybody rallies around, regardless of political context or ideation. So we pay really close attention to it. And it helps folks um, have a common goal. And then with... Um, with that data, we started to say, okay, and who has the credentials to get them? Which kids have the opportunities? And so um, prior to Career Connect Washington really getting off the ground, Washington STEM produced a series of regional reports called STEM by the Numbers. And it kind of highlighted jobs that were specific to the region and told the story of how many high schoolers in the region are going to get their credentials to fill the local jobs. And it was a very clear through line. And we worked on those reports with the regional leaders so that they could then say, okay, this is going to be a compelling story to add in there to illuminate this, or this is the way to talk about this data. And then they kind of made it their own so that it could be very easy for them to walk into a legislator's office or into a local funder's office or a local high school super or school district superintendent's office and talk through the data. And so regionalizing it and making sure that it was really relevant to them with the stories that mattered, you know, some qualitative anecdotal stories that mattered alongside the data really was helpful. So much of what I hear you both naming here is, yes, there's a lot of back-end work that needs to be done to uh, interrogate this data, but it's the work with partners in real places, context matters, that we are able to activate change. And I hear that really coming through in what you're talking about. And what we've been talking about, though, is quantitative data, um, which I think is often where people's minds go when we say, we're going to talk about data and infrastructure, and they're like numbers and spreadsheets and pivot tables. Great. This all tells us one part of the story, but it's not complete, right? We need an ethnographic portion of this conversation. And um, while quantitative data might point to a problem, it's really through the qualitative data that we can understand the context and the nuance that allows us to better discern what might we do next, right? And how do we make meaning of what these numbers say? Angela, 
How are you using qualitative data? And what is the infrastructure you need to harvest that data and turn that back around into storytelling? So for reach, qualitative data is an extremely powerful tool used to complement our use of the healthcare labor market information that we collect on a relatively regular basis. And we use that both in the design as well as the implementation and the advancement of our career pathways. And so from what we are able to gather, you know, it helps us illustrate how our programs are not only working in real life, right, but also providing us a more nuanced understanding of our students' individual growth, any challenges or experiential perceptions of what is needed to be successful in a STEM healthcare career. And also within the context of work-based learning in an academic medical center, REACH has also employed qualitative methods to gather employer insights on their expectations as hosts for these work-based learning experiences. So successes and challenges in providing meaningful experiences to students, and the importance of understanding their role in helping to develop the work health workforce of tomorrow. So knowing both of these perspectives, we feel strengthens our ability to design these STEM and health science career pathways that are reflective of the future of work, but also help deepen in our understanding of our impact and influence on the academic and career decision-making of our students. You, you talk about it with such ease, and I'm I'm sure you didn't wake up one day and just be like, oh, this is how we go about this. How has your thinking evolved around the way that you're talking about the use of qualitative data next to your quantitative data? Like, what are you doing differently now that you might not have done two or three or five years ago as you thought about this work? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's reflective in the way that we go about collecting the data in the first place. You know, when we first started collecting data, you know, we would do it with a pre-post test and, you know, a lot of the questions, they would have a Likert scale and we would just sort of assess um, both participants as well as our host preceptors, their feelings about the experience. But we felt it was really important to sort of advance the tools that we use to sort of capture some of this qualitative information to help support and explain what we might have been seeing with, within that quantitative data that we were gathering. So it really called us to sort of revisit the tools that we use and the means that we use to collect this data in the first place and really sort of expand our understanding of what data is important for us to sort of set our strategic priorities. Janae, do you find the, is your practice similar in that regard? How has your practice changed around that? And, and what are some of the things that you do to harvest these stories from whether it's students or employers or other partners who are engaged in this work and conversation with you? Yeah. So I think I mentioned earlier on some of that systems input data, like um, looking at the number of just, just are there courses and pathways offered in high school? Then kind of thinking about how, how do folks navigate to those pathways? And so we started with quantitative data, which courses are available, which students are taking those courses, breaking it down by demographic, and then which students from there were going off to higher education um, or post-secondary credentials and, and what their outcomes were. But then we worked to augment and edit uh, a great survey that was offered by the Community Center for Education Results. They have their College and Career Leadership Institute survey. And so we surveyed the students and the staff, and it was a mixed method survey. So there were some Likert scale-like questions, and then there were some open-ended questions. And that definitely gave us more insight into um, what some of the issues were. And then we took it a couple steps further. 
We actually interviewed a group of students um, individually, did some empathy interviews, asking students what their experiences were. How did they choose the courses? What did they know about the pathways? Their experiences kind of blew us away and really helped us sort of switch around our assumptions. One of the things is that we knew, we, we figured out that not only do kids have high aspirations for themselves to go off to post-secondary, but they want to learn more and they know that they need to know more about financially how to bear it and about how to navigate it early on. So they said, please start telling us in middle school and please tell us every year. Also, please don't use social media to try to get this information across to us. That was one interesting assumption that we took away from this. Please have it be during the school day. Please have it be during like advisory period or homeroom. We want to hear from teachers. We will take it more seriously if you do it that way, if you dedicate time to it. And the parents, um, especially those who are migrant parents said, you know, we get our information from what's called a migrant liaison. A lot of states, schools have migrant liaisons or other types of liaisons to different communities. And those liaisons had no professional development in preparation for credentials. They had no professional development in financial aid. They didn't know anything about dual enrollment courses or how to navigate to them. So the parents said, please make sure that the professionals that you have that are supporting certain communities are a part of that professional development so that they can help us help our kids navigate to those pathways and those courses that'll get them on track for a post-secondary credential. So we learned a lot from from actually asking folks, what do you want us to design for you and, and where, which spaces? Angela, have you collected any type of similar data? And what has your experience been with people hearing the stories of young people or of communities and what they're asking for? And have you seen a change in mindset um, as people think about what might be important as we design systems? I think one of the things that has really surfaced in um, the qualitative data that we've collected from our students is how critical the support that we provide to our students is. Not only the support, um, both in the classroom and outside of the classroom, the support in learning about the different um, healthcare careers that are available to them, but we also offer a number of wraparound supports to our students as well. And so we found that when we really dove into the, the qualitative data, there was equal emphasis on both the academic supports as well as those wraparound, those more, more holistic supports, and how those two things really sort of worked in concert to the betterment of our students. We've talked a lot about what you're currently up to, a little bit about what you've learned. I've heard a lot about, I think, what is really important. I'm curious, though, and uh, Angela, what do you wish we collectively had? Like, if you think of yourself, and, and you are very much a leader in this field, what do you wish we as a field had more of or we did better? And whether this is about data or data infrastructure, what do you, like as you think about making a real difference in, in students and teachers and employers' lives and their role in this, what do you wish we had access to or did better at at scale? Yeah, that's a great question. My answer is going to be really short, but also really complex. <laughs> I think one thing that always sort of pops to the surface for me is data integration, right? And so sort of breaking down these silos as we move across, you know, institutions, our partners. And also while we're doing that, you know, how do we have access to helpful planning for ethical and responsible cross-sector data use? Like, I think that is one of the key challenges that we face in the work right now. And I also think that's one of our key areas of opportunity. Janae, what about you? What are, what are, what do you think 
we need that we don't have yet? Or what are we not doing with enough intentionality that we, we just need to get smarter about and sharper about and, and more intentional about? It's really hard to scale up good data coaching or data technical assistance, meaning data use among partners, right? It takes time and money to do that. I, I wish we had more philanthropy or other types of funding that paid attention to that kind of systems level work. Sometimes it's, it's not thought about capacity building basically around data literacy and data use. And it takes, it, it, and the time it takes to scale is precious and hard to come by. And we need to make sure we're also compensating the education leaders and the teachers for their time engaging with it, right? You know, folks like school registrars, you know, or, you know, not just the principals, um, but, the, but the folks who really are working with the data. You know, I, another thing that Angela said is, is the data need to be integrated. Thankfully, in Washington State, we have pretty integrated data across sectors. We're one of the few states that have fairly integrated data, but we need better access to that data. It's kind of related to data coaching, but every region wants, for example, an individual report on where their students went off to higher ed, which is not as hard to get, but then where they and if they went off to jobs. We technically in Washington state have that all that data collected and connected, but creating an individual report for each school or community or district would take a lot of time and we would need some funding for it. But that is the kind of information that our partners on the ground, CBOs, schools, have asked for pretty endlessly. I'm energized by the passion Angela and Janae bring to confronting inequity in access and outcomes, and in how they are rethinking their approaches to data collection and analytics to better understand the equity impacts of their work. Only through listening closely to the story that the numbers and the lived experience of people tells can we establish and mark progress on equity-focused targets. I was also struck by how they work to make data visible to youth, showing them what is behind the curtain. Their strategies empower youth with knowledge and information critical to making informed decisions about their educational journey and how it relates to a myriad of future career options. What it looks like to have a real choice is a story we need to be able to tell. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to resources to learn more about the work and the tools used by CareerConnect Washington and REACH to advance their place-based efforts. In our final two episodes this season, we will shift our focus to a conversation about how intermediary organizations can leverage their expertise to influence and advocate for shifts in federal, state, and local policy that will close disparities in economic opportunity for Black and Latinx youth and for youth experiencing poverty. Thanks for listening to Building Equitable Pathways, brought to you by JFF. Together, we're driving transformation of the American workforce and education systems to achieve equitable economic advancement for all. To learn more about Building Equitable Pathways and our coalition of partners, visit us online at jff.org. And we want to hear from you and have you join the conversation. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And tune in for our next episode. This is Kyle Hartung from JFF, signing off until next time.